Hi there, I'm Logan Medish, your host, and my guest today has written a book to help dispel some of the myths around what most people consider to be the odd spring-powered British bazooka, the Piot. Today's guest on the High Caliber History podcast is Matthew Moss, a historian, researcher, and author from the United Kingdom, who is also the co-host of the Fighting on Film podcast, which looks at war movies and conflict on film. Matthew, welcome to the High Caliber History podcast. Hi, Logan. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Absolutely. Glad you could make it. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, uh, and and I know we can do it because there's you are a man of many talents and you are pulled in so many different directions. Um, so, you know, we're going to, we're going to talk about research and books and documentaries and uh, all, all sorts of stuff that you got going on. Um, so first let's, let's start with a little bit of your, your background projects that you've been working on. Uh, you know, you've got historical firearms website yep. uh, that you run. You're also involved with the armorers bench doing videos. Yep. Um, so tell me, tell us a little bit about those two projects and how they, uh, how they blend together and where they diverge. Sure. Um, well, I started historical firearms back in uh, 2013 uh, and that was basically a sort of uh, a hobby, really. I'd just done my uh, my undergraduate degree in history, and I was working a normal job in an office. And I was I was you know I was kind of bored, and I thought, well, I want to keep my hand in. I want to carry on doing research, but I want it to be fun. Um, I'm specifically interested in firearms and small arms history, so I thought, well, I'll do I'll do a history blog, and I'll do. I'll do one on on, uh, on historic firearms. So that's how the blog was born. And then over the years, I, I just kept you know writing articles on there and doing research and you know having the chance to go to to uh, various museums and collections. And I I just basically I sort of slipped into uh, writing more and more on the blog. And I thought, well, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna call time on doing the day job office job and I'm going to go back to university. I'm going to do my master's. So I went back and did my master's and I did my master's in military history. So I specialized and I wrote my master's on the EM2, the, the British bullpup rifle from the fifties. Yep. And I, I probably wouldn't have, have chosen that, you know, without having become fascinated by these things through the blog itself. Um, okay. So from, from there, I, I just, I, I kept on writing for the blog. And then at that point I was asked by a couple of editors at magazines in the UK to do some articles about small arms and, and that, uh, that, that kind of thing. So history of war, the armorer, uh, classic arms, military magazines. And then I wrote something for a small arms review, which was like a, a watermark for me. Like, that's a big thing. You know, right. small arms review is one of these magazines that we all read, even in the UK, you know, like I'm, I'm very familiar with it. Um, and it's not on newsstands here. Um, so that was, that was, a, that was a big moment. And I was, I thought, well, let's, let's keep trying to make, make a career out of this. Let's try and, and do this properly. So I was working other jobs at the same, at the same time after I'd done my master's and, and eventually I, I, I sort of like slipped into the role of a full-time researcher historian. And, um, a couple of years ago, as you mentioned, uh, I launched the Armourer's Bench with my friend, uh, Vic Tuff who is um, an armorer by trade and uh, an engineer. And uh, we decided, well, there's 
there's a gap for for doing videos that are perhaps a little bit more in depth and i wanted to bring my academic side to to the table and and write additional articles alongside what we were doing in the video so we'd we do a video we show the workings of the weapon how it comes apart um but then we also do we try and include the development history operational history that kind of thing and you know when i'm doing all this research it might it might as well be an article next to the video as well so right. that's one of the things that i always try and do is is give an in-depth article with all the source material that i've used listed as in a in a in a bibliography so it's a it's a proper article not not um 100% academic in style so it's accessible sure but I, I like to to be thorough and you know you know explain to people how these firearms that we're looking at worked so you know we've looked at all sorts of things from the g11 down to a Durs egg um reach loading carbine so we've looked at anna ferguson in fact which i'm sure we'll talk about later oh, because i know cool. that a couple of your other guests have have uh have really um talked about about um Patrick Ferguson and his amazing, amazing um, breech loader. Yeah, I, I almost feel like I should change the name of the podcast to the Patrick Ferguson podcast featuring other historic stuff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to Miles after after I listened to uh, your episode with with Miles Vining, and I said, you know, what? I think I'm going to I'm going to mess with Logan a bit, and I'm, I'm going to choose Patrick Ferguson as well. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, everyone that everyone that comes on, it's Patrick right. Ferguson. <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, and as as I mentioned in, in the other episodes, you know, he he really does get his due uh, you know no, it's, his true. name is just and not as well known as it should be really honestly having had the chance to handle one of the rifles um about a year or so ago they are it's it's amazing engineering mm-hmm. and i think as miles and, and uh, jonathan said in previously it's not only that this amazing piece of engineering was developed and actually fielded it's that ferguson was actually pushing the idea of light infantry that's very right very interesting i think absolutely now where where did you handle the the original at uh the original i don't believe it was a uh one of the ones that was uh deployed to america with ferguson's rifle corps um it was it was a military pattern rifle okay so it it appears to have been um a, an example that had been built possibly after it, it, it wasn't a dated and the, the, the provenance was, was good, but didn't have solid dates. And that was in, that was in a, a, a military collection here in the UK. Okay. In a private collection over there. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. I've, I've handled a, a reproduction, but I've, I've never had the opportunity to handle an original. It's, it's on the bucket list and you know, one, yeah, no, one it, day. It's, it's one of those like real honors. Like every time I, I go to a collection, I'm always an inquire of, you know, what kind of firearms they have and, and have you got a Ferguson is, is normally a question that is, you know, is asked. Right. And I remember, I remember years ago when I first met Jonathan Ferguson at Leeds, I said, does the, does the museum have a Ferguson rifle? And he, he was like, yes, but it's on display. And I was like, ah, you know, <laughs> so I had to wait a few more years, but i you know, I finally found a collection where they had, they had an example and it had recently been um, repaired because um it had taken a little bit of stock damage because as you know the the they're quite fragile in that you know the 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 stock yeah um the the uh the mortise in is is really narrow in places it's surprising and but they're very elegant rifles and i, I it just it, it blows my mind to think that 
they were thinking in in the 1770s let's let's feel the breech loader that can fire numerous rounds a minute mm-hmm. aimed from you know from cover that's it, it's you know it's next level jump ahead in terms of uh, the tactics of the time absolutely i mean there was so much of that going on i you know we i don't really think we give the the inventors their due in that time frame you know with with no. what they were experimenting with and you know it's and and i talked about this with miles you know it's it's easy to understand what worked and what succeeded um but, you know, because you look at the design, you go, well, yeah, of course that worked because they did X, Y, and Z and it all fell into place. But that's the beauty yeah. of hindsight. You know, they're looking at it and they, they don't know what's going to work and they don't know what's going to fail unless they try, you know. Well, exactly. And the, there are so many other um, breech loading designs from that period mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, it's something they were giving serious thought to and there were the numerous methods of, of breach loading came about. So, you know, there's the, the Crespi system from Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's a number of French um, screw breach like Ferguson's rifle uh, designs that come from around the, the 1720s onwards. So it's something they were, you know, even, even 50 years before Ferguson got to the point of having a rifle that was, you know, fieldable and, you know, could be, could be uh, issued to troops. They were, you know, they've been thinking about that for 40 years. Sure. Yeah, well, it's the same concept, like, look at the revolver. I mean, Sam Colt gets gets the credit, you know, with coming up with the design in the 1830s and then the practicality of it, you know, a couple decades later. But, you yeah. know, you, you look early on at, at stuff like the Collier, which I, exactly. I just think is such a cool piece. I had the opportunity mm-hmm. to actually take one of those apart uh, down wow. to all the, all the little pieces and pull them out and, and, and check out how it all goes together. And that's such a cool design. Um, but you know, I mean, you figure that's, that's half a century before Sam Colt's working on yeah. his stuff. And, yeah. and again, it's one of those things you, you don't know what's going to take off and what's not until you try, you know? I mean, this is one of the most fascinating parts of, of firearms and small arms history. Like, a, uh, you know, we all know about the, the, the big successes, but often, you know, the things that led to those successes and the things that have sort of become, um, dead ends are often the most fascinating, you know, and yeah, um, I've definitely found that with some of the projects that I've worked on that things that, you know, work, but aren't practical. Right. Sometimes, or sometimes don't even work at all are just as interesting as, you know, the designs that we, we all know and recognize now that have become so iconic in the last century. Yeah, absolutely. And, and talking about different projects that you've been involved with, uh, let's let's talk about one that's forthcoming, um, the Rhineland 45 documentary project yeah. that, that you're going to be part of. And that's through uh, Real Time History, the folks that put together the, the Great War series on YouTube. Yeah. It was just a fantastic series following uh, World War One there, and, and they're still doing great stuff. I, I really enjoyed their 16 Days in Berlin that they put out mm. uh, before this. Um, and really I'm really ambitious. It, yes, very ambitious. Uh, and they, they did a great job with that. Um, if there's anyone listening who hasn't seen it, there will be a link to that. You really need to check that out. Yeah, it's definitely worth watching. It's, you know, it's probably the most in-depth documentary about the, the Battle and Fall of Berlin that, that's out there now. It's definitely definitely well worth a watch and their production values are always so good yes um and 
and then meticulous research is always you know it's that's you don't get that everywhere you everywhere you look and that's that's something i really really appreciate with those guys and jesse and flo uh, i was really honored when they they asked whether i'd be interested in, in helping out with sort of like the the, the weapons and, and kit side of things right um just to give some kind of personal perspective on what soldiers were using in the field during uh, the operations to cross the Rhine and and, and uh, push into into Germany in in, uh, in early 1945 because it's it's a it's it's a bit of a forgotten campaign in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's a battle that was important but is overshadowed by the actual um, fall of Berlin and, and operations in the east. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to, to to working on that with them. Already begun the, the preliminary research into finding some, you know, juicy personal accounts of, of small arms use and, you know, finding about just what weapons were, were used uh, in, in the, in, in the, uh, the actual campaign itself. But um, yeah, that, that I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully that'll be into, into production uh, early next year and then we can, we can get that out and everyone can get an idea of this campaign that's really sort of, become a little bit obscure compared to you know everything else that was going on not only in in the east but also in the far east at that time sure yeah it's uh, you mentioned their production value that and, and it's fantastic i mean the the amount of support that it got uh through the the indiegogo and and the kickstarter and and same with the uh the 16 days to berlin uh it's it's proof positive that, you know, people are sick of the, the Pawn Stars crap yeah. that's on History yeah. Channel and, and, you know, that people want to see actual real history, real history, you know, yeah, yeah real researched history uh, that's properly documented with people who know what they're talking about. They aren't just talking heads. It's not always aliens. You know, sometimes it's aliens. It's not always aliens. Oh, oh at least sixty percent of everything is aliens. You know, um, <laughs> that's that's going to be the the at least according server. to the History Channel documentaries that I've been watching. So yeah, absolutely, it's always aliens, and whatever you bring in is only worth uh, best. Best I can do is like twenty five bucks. So yeah, and you've always got to get a friend to look at it, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, there's a definite thirst for actual real documentary um, yes. programs about important history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and history's history's history. It's so fascinating. Like, there's so many topics you could cover. Oh, so yeah. so many that deserve much more in depth coverage than they get. But you know, at least there's people out there that are, are trying to to deliver these things, which I think is is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, there's so much going on. And that's one thing I I really got to give credit to you guys over there in Europe. It's so much of the stuff, the the proper stuff today that's being done is coming out of Europe. You know, they're for whatever reason, production companies and, and, and the networks over here aren't picking up stuff like that. I mean, it's all the reality TV junk uh, Mm. that's, that's, gaining the the views over here but but there are a number of different publications uh and production companies 
all throughout Europe that are just producing top-notch documentaries, you know, and, and not all World War II focused, you know, I mean, they're covering other time periods. That's great. And, you know, some of it I can pick up through uh, like the, the Roku streaming and stuff. And so I'm able to, yeah, yeah. to tune into some of those shows that uh, thank God for streaming. Cause otherwise I'd, I'd be stuck watching aliens and pawn stars and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i mean i hope it's a trend that changes i do i really do yeah uh, i mean one of the very first shows that i watched um that probably really set me on the path was um tales of the gun i knew that's what you were gonna say i know I everyone it. says this and yep. every, everyone i talk to is sort of like yeah tales of the gun man and yep but it, it was a great show and it you was. know for any any of its failings and you know um anything that didn't go into depth compare it to anything that's out there today that's being made by a major network it's head and shoulders above it really is yep i mean two episodes on the you know the guns of browning yes please you know come on <laughs> exactly i mean you know obscure stuff um niche episodes about like self-defense weapons that kind of mm-hmm. thing it was like really really interesting yeah but we just don't we just don't get that sort of attention to detail and, and depth anymore, I guess, in TV. But yeah. Yeah. And there you know, were, at least we have the internet and we yes. can make our own. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that tales of the gun was, uh, you know, you, you talk about, a uh, a large undertaking and, and remarkable production value for the yeah, time, you know, um, yeah, yeah. it was, it was great. I mean, it had tons of fantastic people in there and, and people that, you know, uh, little did I know, and, and I'm sure little did you know that you'd end up meeting some of these people and working yeah. with these people. And, you know, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, I know we've both spent time, you know, with Phil Schreier and Gary James yeah. and uh, Phil Spangenberger and all sorts of folks, people that I just, I saw on TV for the longest time. And, and I know, right. It's kind of surreal to, when you meet people that you've watched in these programs that you've held up for so long as being like great pieces yeah. of, you know, documentary TV and, and you're speaking to some of the people that were helping with these things. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's talk a little bit about books because we all love books. <laughs> I know you just you just posted on Twitter yesterday. You got some some new pieces in from uh, Ooh, collector yeah, grade a, publications. A, yeah, gorgeous stack of collector grade books. Yeah, yeah, buddy, I love it. I love it. They're, they're... I'm broke again now, but you know it's <laughs> worth it. It's completely worth it. I just wish that you know um, they were more freely available. Yeah, you know, if you're paying hundred dollars, two hundred dollars for 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 one of these books then you're getting your money's worth no doubt about it but i do wish you know for everyone out there that can't afford that or can't f- justify like i can investing so heavily in books that are you know so expensive right i do i do wish they were you know more freely available um you know you know i think ebooks are a great thing but you know i love having a, a real book yeah in in hand but i think ebooks are a great way to go Absolutely. to get some of these publications that are a little less accessible to become, you know, sure. more, more available to everyone. But, um, yeah, I got a, I got a great stack of the right, the right next to me. Nice. Um, <laughs> I haven't been through them all yet. And that's, that's a pleasure for the weekend, but I, they, they came the other day. Um, I love collecting great books and it's, it was a sad day when, when Blake Stevens died. Yeah. But I, I am very glad that they're still selling the stuff, you know, on, mm. on the primary market because, you know, we, we think they're expensive now, man, it's going to be a terrible day when that stuff's only available on the secondary market. Some of those, um, 
editions that are long out of print, they go for so much money. So, yeah. so much money. Yeah. You and know, it, eye-watering sums. Oh God, yeah. You know, and you mentioned ebooks and I I I don't own a single ebook and I don't own a single audio book. I, I, I don't do any of that, you know, but but my bookshelves are literally sagging under the weight <laughs> of well, the, the books. That's a that's you know that's the sign of a good bookshelf when it can take it. Exactly. Although I didn't realize just how much stuff I'd accumulated until we we moved earlier this year and having oh to god pack yeah up I dread having books. to move my my <sighs> my uh, my library my collection out, out of out of its current messy location. Right. But um, yeah I I think we're in a good place. Collector grades still around, thankfully. I don't mm-hmm. know whether they're going to be publishing any any new books going ahead, but because Blake was obviously the editor. Sure. Um, but we have uh, people like Headstamp and um, yeah. um, Small Arms Reviews Publishing Arm. They're putting out books that are, you know, you know there's, there's, there's a few different publishing houses now that are putting out really quality firearms books. And it's an yeah. exciting time to, to be able to research, you know, not only do we have those resources, but we also have, you know, the internet and we can have the interconnectivity right. of you and I having a conversation 3000 miles apart, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's really something when you can do that. Absolutely. And yeah, you know, and Headstamp Publishing has really come in and and filled that void. I think the collector grade, you know, kind of left and it's proof positive that, you know, even though those books are expensive, you know, people are still hungry for them. I mean, you look at the, the pre-purchase campaigns for Ian's book and for Jonathan's book. I mean, just substantial sums of money and, and they're great, but you know, like you said, still some of that's out of reach for some people, and and some people don't necessarily want uh, a, a book that is, uh, as Jonathan put it when we were talking, uh, something that is going to knock down your mailbox when they when they try to put it in there. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so that, there's also uh, a lot of companies that are putting out smaller stuff. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's more easily digestible uh, for for the average person who's getting into things, and I think that also gives us a, a really neat, uh, smooth transition into uh, Osprey <laughs> Publishing and their weapon yeah. series of books that you are very familiar with, having written two of them, right? You've, you've got yeah. two for them? Okay. Yeah, I wrote the, uh, the book on the Sterling submachine gun uh, a couple of years ago, and I've just, uh, just written the book on the projector infantry anti-tank, the Piat, Britain's Second World War anti-tank weapon. Very infantry cool. anti-tank weapon, I should say. So the Piat is kind of one of those things that, uh, unless you know, you don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> if, that, if that makes I any mean, you sense, could easily, you could easily mistake it for a, you know a, a bazooka, right? Or any other kind of shoulder-fired anti-tank weapon of the period, right? But it's it's kind of unique in that it's not actually a rocket launcher or any other kind of weapon. It's actually a spigot mortar, in mm-hmm. that uh, the bomb is fired off of a long steel rod by the force of a propellant cartridge. Then, kind, of, kind, of, kind of weird, but it's what they went with. Right. Hey, and again, you know, one of those things, you, you, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, you don't know unless you try if it's going to work or if it's not, you know? Yeah, well, it, it had a fascinating development history. Um, it's the idea evolved from the, uh, the, the Blacker Bombard, the 29 millimeter spigot mortar, which mm-hmm. was... Uh, a crew served anti-tank weapon that was, was developed on the spigot mortar idea. Um, and before that, the, one of the, the key inventors, um, 
LVS Blacker had developed a, uh, a small sort of like section mortar, which went up against uh, a, a design from Spain that eventually won out and and, and that became the, the, the two inch mortar that uh, British infantry platoons used throughout, you know, the, the, the second world war. Um, so from that failure, he developed um, an anti-tank weapon that was viable. And then from that, the Piat grew from the, the larger weapon into a weapon that was, you know, um, transportable uh, and, you know, wasn't a hindrance in the field like the right. larger uh, Blacker Bombard was. What made you choose the Piat? Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I was given a list of, of topics that they were hoping to cover in the future. Uh-huh. And I really wanted, I really wanted to write a book on the, the Browning High Power because it's a, a firearm that has always fascinated me. Not only is it essentially Browning's last major design, right? It's also a, co- a collaborative effort. So Saev helped and finished the, the design off and evolved it into his own design, essentially. Oh. Um, and then not only was it used by the eyes, but it was also used by the Axis. During, mm-hmm. during the Second World War, it was produced by both sides. So um, that's another interesting uh, element to it. So not only was it a captured design that the Germans put into use, but it was also something that was continually produced under German occupation. Yeah. Um, so I, I really wanted to, to, to see if I could write a book about the, the high power, but someone had already, someone had already snagged that. And I thought, <laughs> oh, well... <laughs> Never mind. What else is on the list? So I went through the list and I thought the Piat. Now no one's written about the Piat before. Like right. there's a number of articles about it, and there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding it because it's a it's an odd weapon. It's a really 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 kind of obs- sort of an obscure idea to base a weapon on, mm-hmm. and it's a bit weird. It's a bit of a weird idea, you know. It is. Yeah. So, <laughs> I suppose I should try and explain how a spigot mortar actually works for sure. the listener. So basically the spigot is an iron rod and in a spigot mortar, it can either be a dynamic spigot or a fixed spigot. So in the Blacker Bombard's case, it was a fixed spigot. So the spigot didn't move. Okay. So you slid the bomb onto it and then you, you pulled the trigger and a firing pin projected out of the spigot ignited the propellant cartridge, which is in the base of the bomb. And then the propellant gases that expand from that cartridge against the face of the spigot essentially become a gas piston or a gas chamber. Okay. Um, and as they expand, the bomb gets projected off it. So that fi- that's what fires it. So there's no barrel per se, like a, a conventional mortar or a conventional firearm, but there is a propellant cartridge and it's, it's kind of like a flip reverse. The barrel is the, the rear of the, um, the bomb tube itself. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, um, the spigot becomes sort of like the breech face, so to speak. But the Piat is a, a dynamic, uh, spigot mortar, which means the spigot moves. So it'll move forward into the bomb. And then once it's detonated the bomb and, and launched it, the the uh, the recoil forces are soaked up by a giant 90 to 100 pound spring. So that's what makes it uh, um, shoulder fired. So that's that's the only reason you can fire a, a Piat from the shoulder. It's, it's purely because of this giant spring. And one of the misconceptions that grew out of the of this spring is that that's what fired the bomb. Okay. People sort of assumed that it was a spring-powered weapon, mm-hmm. whereas in reality it it was more of a, a semi-automatic weapon. 
and the spring was basically the action spring and also its primary job was to, to basically soak up the immense recoil of firing a, a 3.5 inch uh, mortar bomb off the end of a relatively short spigot you know right. massive amount of recoil that's coming back into your shoulder so in order to balance that out they they had this this really significant spring but it's sort of that became the basis of a lot of misconceptions. It was spring powered, so it was weak, so it didn't throw the bomb far enough, so it's not accurate. So it's a bit of a joke. Soldiers hated it. All these kind of interesting misconceptions, which when I began researching, some of them I, I you know, they were misconceptions that I held. Yeah. So through research, the, one of the most interesting things was sort of discovering that the misconceptions aren't all true, you know? Right it had decent range. Soldiers actually really liked it. It had applications which anti-tank weapons of the period couldn't dream of. It could fire indirectly as a mortar. So you could you could drop a bomb indirectly like a mortar round. Mm-hmm. You could um, you could blow a, a hole in a, in a building's wall, something they, they call housebreaking, which is one of the one of the more interesting things I read when I read the, the Piat's actual like um, platoon handling uh, guidance uh-huh. in, in some of the manuals. It's, it can also be used to break into houses that like you can blow a wall down, you can blow doors in that kind of thing. So not only was it, you know, good for good against panzers, but you could also break up uh, enemy defensive positions and pillboxes and that kind of thing. Right. So, um, it was a lot yeah, more it's, versatile it's, than, than, yeah, it was a very versatile weapon. And also, it didn't have any backblast like a, a rocket launcher or, say, a Panzerfaust. So there was no right. there was no danger of of you know injuring anyone that was stood behind you. So you could use it in close quarters. So there's there was a lot of interesting like aspects of the weapon that that came up during during my research. And I thought this is a re- actually a really interesting subject. No one's really done a, a deep dive. Right. So that's that's why I kind of jumped on it from the list of of potential topics that I could have, have chosen from the series. Gotcha. Yeah. And it, it, the the book was great because you're right. It, it did dispel a lot of the misconceptions that people had. I mean, I'll admit, I, I assumed it was just a, you know, a giant spring powered weapon. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what I thought and was always led to believe. Um, but it, it, it is a lot more than that. And it, it's got some, some really cool aspects uh, uh, and applications in history uh, that, uh, you know, I had only maybe briefly heard about or, or some of I hadn't even heard about yeah. at all. Uh, it's post-war use is really fascinating. Yes. And that's, and that's what I thought was so cool. And I didn't realize, uh, you know, any of the post-World War II stuff uh, until I started, you know, following along the, the posts you were making on, on Twitter, you know, with getting into some of the stuff uh, and yeah. its post-war use. And then, of course, uh, reading in the book about its post-war use. Um, but one thing that I'd like to talk about is is its wartime use in in April of 1943 when it takes out a Tiger tank, uh, Tiger 131, which uh, I think is really cool. Is actually at the Tank Museum in in Bovington. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about that story? Um, yeah. Um, basically, it was uh, up against. Uh, it was sent forward to take out a Tiger. And um, that tank is now in the in the Bobbington Tank Museum, as you say. And interestingly, 
through research that was done by the the actual uh, museum themselves, they found that uh, the tank had been engaged by a Piat first before it was finally taken out by, um, um, I believe it was a, uh, a field gun, I think. Okay. That actually took out in the end. But the Piat had gone up against it and fired two rounds. Um, I think one miss, one hit, but it didn't quite take it out. But it's amazing that that was one of the things I really enjoyed when I was researching. I, I was digging into this and I, I thought, wow, these men were going up against tiger tanks, panthers, yeah, you know, the most f- formidable armored vehicles that, you know, Germany could, could put out there. And they were doing it all with this small weapon with a giant spring inside of it that <laughs> fired a funny looking bomb. And, you know, they, and they must've thought, what the hell are we being given here to take out tanks? Right. But they grew, a lot of, a lot of men grew to appreciate the fact that it, you know, it could take on these vehicles and it did have a decent amount of armor piercing capability. Mm-hmm. Um, the number of medals that were won using the Piat are significant. So we, I think we have seven direct actions that involve the Piat that were awarded the Victoria Cross, which is Britain's highest uh, mil- uh, military medal for gallantry, which is a, basically the equivalent to the Medal of Honor for American listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it has dozens and dozens of uh, lesser medals. I mean, I say lesser medals, but it's you know in in, in order of precedence. Sure. So um, military medals um, and other gallantry medals, as well as mentions and in, uh, in dispatches, which is sort of like a commendation where the commanding officer would, would send a commendation and put it on file. And um, there are so, so many that involve the PI. It's, it's really surprising. And one of the things that I wanted to convey in the book was some of these extraordinary actions that, the, that men took, like um, Ganju Lama, a, um, a Gurkha in, uh, fighting in Burma, in, well, in, in uh, north, northeast India. Uh, during the Japanese uh, offensive in in 1945, he took on, uh, I believe it was three Japanese um, medium tanks with a Piat. Took out two of them. It's crazy. Badly wounded, badly wounded in the process, and then chased the crews off with hand grenades. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. It, it's an amazing story, and you know the, the same in Northwest Europe. There were at least four pass. Uh, more like five actually uh, VC winning actions that involved the Piat directly. Okay. So, you know, um, at the Battle of Arnhem during Operation Market Garden, uh, Major Kane of the, the parachute, um, sorry, of, of uh, First British Airborne Division, he, um, he used the Piat throughout the battle to drive off Stugs and, and, and Panzers. It's, it's it's incredible, you know. There's accounts where men literally chase tanks down the street in order to hit them with piats. That's know, it's, crazy. It's a the the level of courage to to use the weapon because obviously it did have a limited range. It's it's uh, direct fire range was about 100 yards. So mm-hmm. you know the in most cases it seems that men were getting much much closer than 100 yards to be sure of hitting their target, mm-hmm. which took a huge amount of balls really oh think yeah about it yeah i mean tons of courage like like you said but also tons of confidence in in the weapon to be willing 
you know, to, to run yeah, forth and do that. You wouldn't change the panzer if you didn't think you were going to hit it, would you? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's, yeah, that's a remarkable amount of gallantry among the men in all the different campaigns there. And uh, it's, it's really cool. And, you know, and it, it played a substantial role in the D-Day campaign and, you yeah. know, and, and yeah. in fact, the, the very first armored vehicle uh, taken out by allied infantry was with a Piat. I learned that in the book, <laughs> Pegasus Bridge, which yeah. blew my mind. It, honestly, the, I think we believe uh, it, some claimed it was a Panzer IV, but we a lot of a lot of researchers now believe that it was probably a, um, a French tank um, in in German service. Okay, because um, there, there were a lot of those in service in in Normandy at the time, and um, yeah, it was trundling up to towards the the airborne forces which had just landed on, on Pegasus Bridge and captured it, which is on, was on the extreme flank of you know the landings. It was it was right. the, um, an important strategic strategic position. Yeah. Um and this tank rolled up and uh, a sergeant um basically waited until it was almost on top of him and fired. And from his accounts he hated the Piat and he, he had very <laughs> little confidence in it, but they had nothing else. So, you know, he, he basically he wasn't he wasn't assigned the Piat, he just took it up and moved into position and luckily knocked out this tank and um and, and they managed to hold on to the bridge. But I it blew it blew me away when I I dug into it and I found out that probably the very first enemy armored fighting vehicle that was knocked out during D Day was was with a Piat. Amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. And that's, that's a story that just doesn't get told. And, and it's so cool that you were able to bring that to light in the book. Cause I, I would have never known that story, you know, had it not been uh, for the book. So I'm certainly. Well, one of the, one of the things, it's only a short book. It's, it's only a, basically an overview. Yes. Um, I'm hoping to write something a little bit more in depth about it along a little bit further down the line. But what I really wanted to do was convey what, the men who used it thought about it and mm. discuss their opinions and thoughts on not only using it in action, but also being shown it, you know, when they were, you know, first issued with these and, you know, just conveying what they thought about the weapon and whether they thought it was effective. And, you know, there's interesting accounts of officers where after the war, they, they discussed in um, interviews with, with various people, including the Imperial War Museum, um, one officer discussed the uh, the Piat, and he, he said it was woefully inadequate compared to the weapons that the Germans had. You know, the Panzerfaust, Panzerschreck, and you know he's he's right, he's right. But um, those are the kind of opinions I wanted to find, right? Because you know we we can we can form an opinion from looking at photographs of these weapons, or you know, watching a video of one being used, but. We never, we've never used one in action. It's only these men that have actually experienced what it was like to be sat behind one of these piats and actually aimed it at a panzer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a perspective that you can only get through their firsthand accounts that comes from a tremendous amount of research put in, you yeah. know, by, by yourself. And that I think segues into the next topic is researching in the time of COVID. Ooh. Yeah. That's, we talked a little it's bit difficult. before we, it's difficult. Yeah. Short answer. It's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we, we talked a bit uh, before we hit record uh, about some of the challenges with that. And um, so I just, 
you know, on the one hand, you were prevented from access to museums of, of all kinds and private collections. But we've also got uh, access via the internet to a lot of great digital archives and a lot of the museums have been really good about putting stuff online. Um, what has been your biggest challenge with, with researching during COVID? Well, with with the Armourers Bench, a lot of what we do is we get into collections and we, we handle firearms and disassemble them and basically get as good a footage and photographs of them as we can to make our basically documentaries and articles. But with with the lockdown, I haven't actually managed to get into a single collection this year. I haven't wow. uh, I haven't been able to get um, hands on in uh, any of the collections I, w- I was planning to, to access this year. I mean, we were all hoping to be in Cody again uh, yeah. for the symposium or uh, I believe it was going to be held in Springfield this time. Around. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. In Springfield, Mass so, at the Armory. Yeah. So I was really looking forward to, you know, visiting uh, Springfield Armory and, you know, getting, getting a look at their collection. But yeah. COVID just, just came out of nowhere. And, and I think it's basically set everyone, everyone back and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, not getting access to, to actual weapons collections is one element of that. And then not being able to access archives too. So I, I do a lot of archival research at places like uh, the Royal Armouries in Leeds's um, library and archive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's just there's just no way to get there. We had a national lockdown for three months, and then the museum itself didn't reopen until uh, October. And then we had we were currently in the midst of another month long national lockdown. So right. I was hoping to get to the to the archives, but it, it just hasn't materialised. Now I, I can't really see it happening this year at this point. Right. Well, luckily, we have resources online, and I know I have a backlog of material that I've photographed over the over the months and years, and you know, at least I have that to go through and work through, but you know, it's, it's just, it's really tough situation for everyone, you know, uh, in, in the research community. Yeah. We, we just have to ride it out like everyone else, I guess, you know, these things happen. And while it's an inconvenience, you know, it's a, I guess it's a necessary inconvenience. And as long as these institutions continue to be there for you know when we can access them again then that's the main thing so we have to we have to be vigilant and support institutions that have these collections have these archives because it's a tough time for them too you know absolutely a lot of them are laying off staff and you know it's it's a difficult time you know because they just aren't getting the visitors so museums in the uk aren't, aren't getting any, any visitors really because of the lockdowns and visitor yep. numbers have been down anyway because people are understandably more reluctant to be out in public and, you know, go into places that are going to have large crowds, et cetera. So sure. It's one of those, one of those things I think we have to be vigilant of finding ways to support collections, you know, going forward as well. Absolutely. Yeah. They, there was an article that came out here stateside a couple of months ago that said uh, they were estimating that as many as a third of all museums in the United States might not survive uh, wow. the COVID lockdowns. And of course, I mean, obviously that uh, will entail a lot of, you know, smaller museums and yeah. you know, more independently run, you know, we're not talking about like the Smithsonian or the Met or stuff like that, but 
even those large institutions have have suffered tremendously mm-hmm. um, from from these shutdowns. It's the same and, over here. Like you know, the yeah. small regimental museums that are self funded rely on yeah. donations. They're charities in the yep. UK, and I, it's just they're struggling. They're they're really struggling. I tried to I tried to raise some awareness about this on Twitter, and I I did a thread of you know, like museums that were doing fundraisers and I was trying to share as many of those as possible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and it worries, it, it's a concern for me is that, you know, there's kids that aren't going to get to go to museums, you know, that I got to go to. Right. So in, in the States, like, you know, you can drive through like a fairly small town and they might have a World War II museum. Right. Or, you know, uh, an adjunct to like the um, – Veterans of Foreign Wars Association, et cetera, that kind of thing. They might have a collection or, you know, they might have something open to the public. Right. But, and it's the same here in the UK. So we have, you know, small privately run museums or, or small charity run museums. And it is, it is a likelihood that we will see some of those close. And it's, it's really sad. Yeah. yeah hopefully, some of those- hopefully most of them survive. I mean, what, what's the saddest part of that is it's a loss of culture. Yeah. You know, and when you lose culture, you lose perspective. And when you, you know, you lose perspective, then you're less, less interested in supporting these museums. So yeah. it's definitely, yeah. you know, something to be, you know, thoughtful and mindful of that, we, you know, we have to support these institutions while we have them, because it's a lot harder to build something new than it is to, or build back up something than right. it is to, you know, have something that's, going to stand the test of time and survive the, the pandemic. Yep. Yeah. And we, we had issues over here where it actually delayed the opening uh, of new museums. Uh, one was uh, the National Museum of Military Vehicles, which uh, is a privately run museum out in Wyoming, um, mm-hmm. but privately run in, in an unusual way that it, it's completely self-funded by a guy who's a self-made millionaire. So right. Um, right. Uh, but it, it delayed his opening uh, by a few months uh, because of the lockdowns in Wyoming. Um, uh, but even bigger uh, was the National Museum of the, the United States Army. Yeah. Um, they did not today, have. They? They're, they're opening up. today. Yeah, we're yeah. we're recording this on on November 11th, Veterans Day, our Mistus Day. Uh, yeah, and they were supposed to open, I think, back in June. And uh, and their opening got pushed to November. I mean, and that's huge. Um, now, you know, plus side, they get to open it on Veterans Day, which is you know kind of a neat coincidence. But yeah, um, and and it gives the staff you know an extra five months to to get the finishing touches on on things. You check all that, those tags. Exactly. Yeah, check all those <laughs> tags. Get rid of the typos and some of the labels that were there. Um, you know, but at the same time, that's also five months or so of visitation and gift shop purchases and things of yeah. that nature that that they're missing out on. And that's, you know, from, from all the way at the top, like the Smithsonian and the Met all the way down to, to your little more independently run museums. And it's, it's yeah. having a huge ripple effect uh, for researchers and, and for visitors and staff and all sorts of stuff. It's, it's been a huge shift. So let's move on while we're talking museums. You've been fortunate enough to see museums all throughout the world. Um, Part of that comes from the fact that, you know, (laughs) Europe's certainly a little bit smaller than we are here stateside. So you're able to to travel and and see more stuff uh, a little more easily than than I have been able to here stateside. Um, 
But having visited, you know, museums over in Europe and museums here in the States, do you have a favorite museum or museum collection that you've enjoyed most? Wow, that's that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> you know, ironically, this year was going to be the year that I was going to foray more into Europe and try and visit some of the collections I haven't actually been to yet. So, um, so like the the Dutch Military Museum and mm-hmm. a couple of museums in Germany, and there's there's a few museums in, uh, in the Asia as well that I wanted to to check out. But yeah, I COVID got in the way, and we we haven't been able to travel. So. But I have been lucky, you're right, I've been lucky to, to visit a number of collections and, and museums that are absolutely amazing, basically. And my two favourites at the moment are the Royal Armouries in Leeds uh-huh. um, and the Cody Firearms Museum. Okay. So, and that's that's because of not only of the breadth of their collections and the way they actually... Uh, display their 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 items. It I've got fond memories of of being a, uh, a kid and and visiting the the armories for the the very first time the year it opened back in like 1997. Okay, so I I I remember walking around in awe at, at everything that was on display in the armories. It wasn't until years later when I you know when I became a researcher and, and a historian that I actually got access to to the library and the archives and, and, and later the national firearms collection, um, with, with Jonathan Ferguson, uh, that you've, you've had on previously. And it's, it is the, the, probably the most comprehensive collections that you can imagine. It really is stunning. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the Cody firearms museum, I, I have a great relationship with them because I was a, a visiting research fellow a couple of years ago. Um, and that enabled me to, to not only rummage around their archives, but also Danny and Ashley were kind enough to let me, you know, handle firearms in, in, in the reserve collection in the back. Um, and actually weapons off display as well. Danny was kind enough to open up some cabinets for me. And that, that was, you know, like a real privilege. And I've, I've always yeah. appreciated, you know, the, the lengths that museums will go to, you know, to like help researchers access and, and research, you know, elements from their, from their, um, their, their collections. But yeah, so I, I would say, I would say it's, it's a tussle between the Royal Armouries and, and uh, the Cody Firearms Museum. Nope, Both two of very which good are, choices. Yeah. They're, they're, they're brilliant museums, but, but there's, there's, there's other great museums too. There's the National Army Museum here uh, in, in London, in the UK. Um, there's a number of great museums in Germany. Um, Koblenz is a great museum. Um, and my colleague Vic from the Armourers Bench has, has recorded a number of videos and, and had the pleasure of um, exploring some of the collection of the, the Dutch Military Museum, the NMM, uh, which is has a phenomenal collection on par with, with basically on par with, with Cody and, and, uh, and uh, the Armouries in Leeds. Mm-hmm. What's your favourite collection though, Logan? Oh man, what's my favorite collection? That's collection or museum. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. I mean, it's. I know uh, you're throwing this out on 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 your guests, but <laughs> I thought I'd throw Turn it back the at you and, and yeah, and see what you thought. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a tough one. Um, you know, I I might be a little biased because I worked there uh, for a number of years, but but the National Firearms Museum. Um, 
was was a joy to work in from a collection standpoint because mm. they had a little bit of everything. Um, yeah, you know they uh, they're what I would call uh, lack of a scope of collections was that their scope of collections was everything, um, <laughs> you know, and, and they, they collected everything. And so it was neat. And uh, I think the biggest benefit to that collection is that uh, there were a lot of pieces in it that were usable arms, you know, uh, so many museum pieces you know, stuff gets put on display and it sits there. It's a museum artifact. It's preserved for yeah. posterity. And, you know, some museums are fortunate enough to have research collections and, mm -hmm. and have pieces that they can do, you know, what's called consumptive use uh, yeah, yeah. of that. And the, the NRA museums were very fortunate to have a number of pieces that are able to be used for consumptive use. Um, so, you know, was able to shoot a Webley Fosbury and, and a Mateba and compare the two semi-automatic revolvers uh, and, and to see how they shoot. So that was really cool. Um, so I really enjoyed that collection just because of, you know, having worked there. So I'm a little biased with it. No, um, it sounds like a good choice. That's a collection I would love to look at. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, the next time you're over here, you know, we will have to certainly make it happen. And the other, the other collection that I, I really enjoyed is the national firearms collection at the Smithsonian uh, in, in the museum of American history, because they have tons of patent models, which yeah. are just so incredibly cool. I you know your video on the, the, the Browning uh, 1885 yeah, and what became uh, the single shot there, and yeah. it's it was so cool. I mean, just they have so many patent models that they're just you know you're pulling out drawers and and you you never know what you're going to find in there. I mean, sitting sitting right next to the the Browning patent model uh, was another patent model from uh, Christian Sharps, and then wow. in the drawer just below that was uh, a Lamatt patent model, uh, you know, in different variations. It's just, it was so cool to go through and see some of those different models. And, uh, and then of course there was all sorts of other weird and, and wacky stuff in there too. Things that never made it off the ground. Um, you know, and you look at it, you're like, what the heck is that? And I'm looking at the tags and like, I don't recognize that guy's name and I can't figure out how this action works. So I guess that explains why it never went anywhere. They're often the most, they're, they're often the most exciting, I think, when you find something in a collection where you're, where it's so different from what you're used to that you don't, you can't fathom how the actual weapon works itself. Yes. So there's a couple of those that I, I looked at in Cody. They had a number of uh, pump action uh, pattern models that they'd inherited from the, the Winchester factory museum collection, which had been purchased uh, as a result of a, uh, a lawsuit they were uh, undertake well being, they were defending against. So they were, they were basically protecting against a suit that claimed they'd, that the, uh, the, the claimant had already um, patented the pump action which uh, okay. obviously proved, you know, made difficulties for, for Winchester bringing out the, the 93 and the subsequent 97. So they basically, they went to Europe and, and found a load of uh, pump action designs that predated, predated the, uh, the claimant's design and pattern that they owned. And basically they came back with these three weird and wacky European designs. One was the Curtis 
over the shoulder sort of like ball pup uh, pump action. And then there was a, a couple of, there was another yeah. English design and then this, this bizarre, almost steampunk, although I hate the word steampunk looking um, uh, <laughs> pump action rifle with a helical magazine, um, which sort of had oh, like, cool. I think in the end we, we, I worked out that it had like a 16 to 20 round magazine capacity and it dated from 1866, no 63. One, around it was early 1860s and you know the, these are the kind of things that you find okay. when, you, when you go into a collection that really you know really excite me like that's the kind of stuff that's like wow now that's that's interesting that's rare that's unusual this is this is a weird dead end that someone chased to the point where they actually made a working model but it never went further right and i think some sometimes they're the most interesting firearm stories Absolutely. Yeah, there it you talking about, you know, weird patents that that people pursue it makes me think of uh, there was a piece that was donated to the National Firearms Museum when I was there um a what I assume was supposed to be a rifle of some sort. Um but it looked more uh like um oh god, how do I explain it? It it had pulleys and strings and wires and it it looked more like it was supposed to be some piece of industrial (laughs) mechanical equipment than it was ever supposed to be a firearm but it was i guess the guy just put it together with whatever he had at hand to accomplish it and I mean, he, he did actually get a patent on it. Um, it it ne- obviously never went into production, but it was it, it was obviously something that he believed in enough that he merited, you know, taking these chunks of steel and welding them together and then adding pulleys and, you know, what was either probably piano wire or guitar wire <laughs> into, into the pulleys to make it work. And it just, you know, uh, again, with hindsight, we look at it and go, well, yeah, of course that didn't work. What that, what the hell is this thing? But you know, that was, that yeah, was someone's I mean, baby, well, you know, it's, it's understandable. I can see why some inventors went down these paths that seemed crazy. I mean, if you look at Browning's first sort of like prototype mm-hmm. for the, uh, what would become the, the, uh, the potato digger, the 1895, um, machine gun that that's kind of, you know, you look mm-hmm. at that and you think, eh, that, that's, that's kind of a weird looking thing. You know, it has that, that, um, gas trap spoon at the front and it's, you know, it's, um, Right. I think there was an even, an even earlier prototype that was based off of a, a Winchester lever action as well, you know, just to prove a concept. But sometimes, sometimes people right. never really get beyond the proving the concept, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the potato digger is the perfect example of, of weird looking guns. Because, I mean, cause hell, even the yeah. production gun yeah. is, is a little weird looking with but, the lever I mean, coming the down time, from the bottom. At but, the time that could have been, what everything that could have that could have been the the line everything evolved along. Obviously, we went to different right. gas-operated systems, but you know, so many of Browning's other designs were what became the the focal point for development from from there on. So I can see why you know right. some some the inventors would create these amazing Heath Robinson looking crazy weapons and think, well, yeah, this is practical. This could become practical. 
Yeah, same with early semi-automatic pistol yeah. designs. You know, you look at some of the weird Bergmans and and all sorts of unusual things. And you know, and then of course along comes Browning again with what becomes the 1911. And again, through hindsight, we go, well, yeah, of course it yeah. ended up being something like this. But it, they they certainly didn't know when they were working on the designs in the 1890s and the early 1900s as to what exactly, exactly. was going to work. Uh, I mean, you look at, heck, just Browning's own designs into what becomes the 1911, even in just the handful of years leading up to it, yeah. how much his designs changed, you know, grip angles you know, and, he, and, and safety and sights and all sorts of stuff. Various different, um, different actions for, for handguns that fell by the wayside. So there were, there were Browning designs that fell by the wayside. There's yeah. two other designs that, that, that uh, never went on to become practical. So, and actually, that's another museum that right. I, I should mention that the um, the, uh, the the Browning Museum is is has a phenomenal collection of of his early prototypes. Yeah, it, it's it's a great museum, but you, you can't handle the collection because it's all sealed up in the in the in the uh, displays, which is a shame. But it's great that they're on display. I think that's such an important collection that it's possibly overlooked a little. I think. Yeah. I think so. Well, I mean, being in Ogden, Utah. Lovely town. I went there especially for the museum. <laughs> See, you know, but 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 you're weird like that. Yeah. We're weird like that. We would go to Ogden just True. to go to the museum, whereas other people would go, well, where are we, where do you want to go on vacation this year? You know, I, I think there are very few people who probably say Ogden. Um, you know, so I, I don't know what their visitation is like, but... I don't uh, know. It's, it's, it's kind of combined into a museum with with trains and automobiles and art. So there's like four museums in okay. the, the town's old like central station, which is a gorgeous building. Okay. Well, maybe that helps bring, you know, maybe that yeah. helps uh, bring in Great some museum, of the, the tourists. Great museum. Much like, yeah, you know, much, much like uh, the Buffalo Bill Center of the West, you may get people coming in, you know, who want to see yeah. more of the natural history side, but then the Cody Firearms Museum is right across the hall, so they wander into there too. So, you know, multiple exactly. birds with one stone. So we had started talking about this uh, a little out of order, and and as we wrap up, we're gonna we're we're gonna cover this because I gotta ask it, um, and you're not allowed <laughs> to say Patrick Ferguson, <laughs> or maybe you are. I I don't know. I, you certainly could, but but if you could meet any gun designer, living or dead, who would it be? I think as other guests have said, that's a immeasurably tough question, and while Ferguson is a great answer uh, he wouldn't he i don't think he he would be my my go-to i would love to sit down with him and, and discuss his theories on light infantry and you know his de his his development of this the screw breach but there's there's so many other designers that have been equally if not more influential like i would love to sit down with browning i think everyone would instantly say eh. mm -hmm ask anyone that question that's interested in firearms history and they probably go John Browning. Um, I would, yeah, I would very much love to speak to John Browning about about his work. That would be, it's a, it's a historian's dream, isn't it? Really getting to sit down with someone like that. Yeah, it really um, is. But there's so many others. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's a whole plethora of, of designers that we don't really know about. So there's Browning's contemporaries, like, 
it it would be amazing to to speak to Andrew Burgess. It would be amazing to to get some insight mm-hmm. from William Mason. It would you know these are these are Browning's mm-hmm. contemporaries who did amazing work and worked in a whole plethora of fields, you know. But their their work is sort of sort of forgotten, except for a couple of firearms that you know might still be in circulation. You know, there's Europeans too. Right. Um, Simonov, the Russian designer, that he'd be a fascinating person to speak to. He he worked a lot on um, mm-hmm. early Russian uh, self-loading rifles, the SVT uh, 40 and the SKS, and a whole host of uh, assault rifles and, and, and pistols as well. Um, there's, I would love to have, have met uh, Stefan Jansen, the designer of the EM2. So I, I wrote I wrote my masters yeah. on the EM2 and the program that he was part of to develop a new infantry rifle for the British Army, and he was a World War II emigre. He was a, a Polish army officer who escaped from Europe and joined the the, the British Army's uh, armament design department and worked heavily on uh, a various number of different different projects, and then that culminated with. The, the EM2, the bullpup. And where did he end up after after the EM2 was um, was rejected? He went to work for Winchester in the US. And what, um, yeah, and where oh, John no Ayla Salvo rifle designs. Um, Ooh, so wow. fascinating character, just, just for his escape from, you know, Europe, you know, as, as the war began and, you know, the, mm-hmm. the experience of developing such a revolutionary, interesting firearm as the EM2. But I think, I think one firearm that has sort of been central to a lot of the research that I've done and has always been in the back of my mind recently is is um, is a design by uh, Winchester designer Frank Burton, and he was he was yeah. responsible, we believe, for uh, what is known as the Burton machine rifle, and and Burton. Is is uh, accredited with this, but we don't we don't actually know for sure because we have an example of the rifle, which is in the Cody Firearms Museum. We have possibly one or two uh, patents that link to not the weapon itself, but the loading of the weapon's magazines. So basically, a magazine loader. But for anyone who hasn't seen the Burton machine rifle, um, it is a, wep- a weapon that was designed. And we think about 1916, 17, uh, during the First World War. And it has two uh, top-mounted magazines that come off in a V-shape from the receiver. One magazine is, in, is, uh, is, is, is basically loading the action, while the other one sits in reserve, and then you can, you can swap them over. So it's kind of like a, a very convoluted sort of like jungle mag situation where they're actually sat, <laughs> like sat on the gun for the longest time people believed that it was it was described as the balloon buster so that people thought it had been designed to fire like a, an incendiary round at, at observation balloons on the western front but by the time it was ready the, there were there were uh, i believe it was 11 millimeter um heavy machine guns that were firing rounds that were capable of um setting these balloons on fire far better than the uh, the round that the Burton was chambered in the most fascinating thing about the the Benton machine rifle is that um, it's 
chambered in what could be described as an intermediate caliber. And it's also uh, ambidextrous. So it's, it's ambidextrous in that the charging handle is at the bottom of the receiver uh, and it ejects from, mm-hmm. from below as well. But we, don't, we know so little about the rifle and we have a, a tangential link to, to it being a development of Ben's. So I think he's definitely one of the designers that I would love to sit down and grill. I would love to find out whether he developed that rifle and what it was for. Was it for balloon busting or was it designed uh, as an infantry weapon or, you know, because that, for that, for that period, that weapon is revolutionary. It is, a, it is a weapon yeah. that looks so unlike anything else of the period. Its capabilities would have been far beyond anything else that was in the field at that time. Um, I suppose the nearest comparison would be the Fedorov in Russia firing an intermediate mm-hmm. cartridge being select fire you know it's just just one of those intriguing mysterious firearms that we haven't quite gotten to the bottom of yet uh, Danny Michael and I at the Cody Firearms Museum we tried to take it apart and it we, we got it we got it partially apart but we couldn't get the working parts out of it we we took the we took the butt off oh really and we couldn't remove what appeared to be a buffer assembly so we never quite got okay. to the got got to grips with how it actually works internally. So again, it's one of those mystery weapons that you go into collections and you look at and you go, "How does that work? Who designed this? What is the mm-hmm. story behind this?" And I I did so much archival digging. I I dug through dozens of boxes looking for any mention of of this. And we've I've had colleagues at the the U.S. National Archives that have dug through army reports because it was reputedly uh, tested at some point, but we've never been able to find any, any of the reports or, or even document documentation that actually mentions the weapon. So yeah, wow. I think Frank Benton would be a great character to sit down with. And he's, he's, he's my choice purely because he's not one that everyone would, would think of instantly, but he did some fascinating work right? and he was instrumental at sure not only making sure that the firearms that Winchester was producing during World War One were produced uh, to the correct, you know, timescales and standards and, you know, effectively, but he also helped Browning with the, um, the BAR as well. Yeah. Yeah. Frank Burton would be a, a cool one to meet if, if for no other reason than to grab him by the shoulders, shake him and tell him to keep right. better documentation. Where right? are your letters? Why did you not paint <laughs> your gun, Frank? What is going on? <laughs> right. Right. I'd, I'd like to meet his father. Yeah, you've done a lot of work looking at, at the, the stuff his, uh, his ancestors did. Yeah, yeah, I've done quite a bit on him, and he's he's fascinating. I, I think James Henry Burton's just so cool, working for yeah. multiple different countries and, and multiple different companies and designs and all, all sorts of stuff. And um, so, yeah, the, the Burton family would, would definitely be a cool one. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad someone, you chose someone that wasn't Frank Burton. Ferguson. That <laughs> wasn't Patrick Ferguson. Like I said, I, now I don't have to change the name of the podcast. So, um, so that's great. Uh, Frank Burton is is definitely a good choice. 
Well, Matthew, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the High Caliber History Podcast. It's been great having you here. Um, wonderful picking your brain about some different things and uh, looking forward to the, the Rhineland 45 documentary when it comes out. And, um, you know, if, if folks haven't picked up copies of your books on, on the Sterling and the Piat, they definitely need to. Uh, there will be links to those uh, in, in the description below here as well. Um, Matthew, thank you again. Really appreciate having you. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. There's nothing I like more sitting down with like-minded people discussing firearms history and all the work that you, you do through high caliber is, is always absolutely fascinating. And it's, it's always great to sit down and talk to you about firearms, Logan. So thank you so much for inviting me on and being in the esteemed company of some of the other guests that you've had on already. Well, thank you for the kind words. Really appreciate it, Matt. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks again to Matt Moss for coming on the podcast today. If you're interested in learning more about the work he's doing, you can visit him online at historicalfirearms.info and armorersbench.com. And armorer is spelled with a U because Matt is from the UK. Uh, There will be links to these below. I really appreciate you tuning in and listening to this episode, and we'll see you again real soon.